Hello, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Chinese Chip Girl with Cara Boss. Before you start listening, just thought I'd give you a mini heads up that our conversation does contain some sensitivity on adoptees. If you find this conversation too triggering, please feel free to pause the episode and resume back when you're ready. Thank you. And you're back with another episode of Chinese Chippy Girl. Today is a very special episode as I have a chat with someone who has really touched my heart and I've been following her story for a while. I'd like to introduce you to Cara Boss, Korean American adoptee and on her journey of finding out more on her birth mother. Hi, Cara. Hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> nice. Yeah, nice to meet you as well. Before I go into it, I think I wrote this to you on a DM but I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming onto the show and also for me I feel out of everyone who I've spoken to on Chinese Chippy Girl podcast this is an episode where I I feel a little bit out of my depth <laughs> I feel out of my depth because I know that this is a very touching story I'm very aware that We'll probably talk about some very sensitive. You're most likely going to relive your trauma. And it's a very personal story um, for you. And I'm just very grateful that you've come on. The other thing is as well is if there's anything that you don't feel comfortable talking about, if you need to pause or stop or anything, or if you feel some of the questions that I might ask, which is a bit intrusive, I guess, just we we can we can just move on. I want to give you, Cara, the spotlight of telling people your story, raising awareness. And yeah, I just want to give you just want to have a, a chat really. But before we go into it, would you like to give an introduction to who you are and and yeah, your journey, I suppose. Yes, thank you so much for having me on your show. And I appreciate you raising, especially adoptive voices in this way, because I think it's important that possible. Because I think for only way to, sh- to be able to change a typical narrative that's been around, I think, for generations of adoptees and adoptee stories is for more adoptees like me to share our story. And uh, so thank you for that. So yes, my name is Kara Boss. And as Maybe many listeners have already known or heard about my story before as it's been in the media quite a bit. I hope that this maybe gives a little bit more of a personal aspect to my story instead of maybe what they just read or saw on the BBC or New York Times. And I'm honestly also just a typical person. (laughs) I just turned 40 this year and I have two children and I'm married and I live in Amsterdam. I'm American. I moved here 13 years ago. And I moved here for love. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I never expected to be uh, living in the Netherlands of all places in the world, but it's what uh, it's where I was brought to. And I absolutely love it, actually. I really adore this city and this village, I should say. My kids really thrive and I really love living here. And I, yeah, I grew up in America. 
And so I'm also very American uh, as well. And that's not something that I think you can really, culture is a big aspect of who we are as individuals and where we grow up and what we acquire. But I think as you move to different places, I think you start to acquire other aspects and it changes you as a person for sure. I'm sure if you ask my parents that they would say the same thing. And so I've, I've changed, I think a lot since when I lived in America but I still appreciate America for what it uh, means to me. And it will always hold a special place in my heart. That's so lovely that, that you moved to uh, Europe for love. And you also have two most beautiful, beautiful <laughs> children. I see them on Instagram. This is so gorgeous. <laughs> Thank you. How old are they? My daughter is six and she'll be seven actually in December. And my son is nine. And yes, they're definitely one of the the biggest joys in my life and what I really live for as well. And I think a lot of people have a different perception of me as a person uh, a lot of times because I, you know, in the media, I come very maybe over as being a woman who's just searching for her mother. And of course I am, but I'm also a mother myself. And so Mm -hmm. I have a business and I have a life here in Amsterdam as well. So that's also a a huge aspect of my life. Could you... Tell me more about your your childhood of growing up in America and more about your family. Sure. I was raised with Caucasian parents. They adopted mm-hmm. me as the youngest. I have an older brother and sister, and my brother and sister are actually the biological children of my parents. And okay. I grew up in a very rural uh, area of America and Michigan, and I think there were maybe three Asians, maybe four in my community, and two of them were other adoptees that I had regular contact with because we attended the same church. And there was a Chinese restaurant also <laughs> in in the, <laughs> in the small town, but I didn't have any kind of interaction, to be honest, with them. I Yeah, I grew up as I think most adoptees just, and and even I would say maybe similar to you, uh, maybe you also grew up in a very predominantly Caucasian environment as well. And so race and color and every aspect of what that can even mean to a person was very much ignored in my childhood, but it was also a part of kind of the post-adoption services in my time when I was uh, adopted back in the eighties, early eighties, 1984. My parents were very much told to just raise your child as an American. And so they had, I think, the typical, I would say, one-liner of, we don't see color, we don't see race, you're just a part Mm -hmm. of our family. And to be honest, I also never felt anything differently outside of that. I I had a very strong personality. So if once in a while I might have gotten the remark about my eyes or called even a Chinese dude... I would stand up very strong and firmly against that and I would fight back. So I didn't really face a lot of racism, I would say, when I was a child in the sense of being bullied and uh, feeling inadequate or that I, I didn't, I would say, earn my place there as a, as a fellow American or fellow child in my environment. But there were different ways that I, I definitely felt like I was earning my place in, in my family life. And you said you, so did you say you were adopted into America in 1984? So I'm not showing your age or anything. Yeah. During your time, either as a child or as a teen or as a young adult, was there any part of you that wanted to find more about your Korean identity, your Korean heritage, your Korean family? I think a lot of us adoptees, because we're raised in a predominantly uh, 
Caucasian environment. And there isn't much of an emphasis on on where we came from because you're supposed to honestly forget it in that time. You're not supposed to embrace it and remember anything about your past because the past is is something that's very painful and it's better just to move on and not think about it because you have a new family and you have a new life and opportunity so there's no reason to embrace something that you know doesn't relate to who you are now and who I was then was not a korean i was american and so in my parents they they didn't take me to culture camps and they weren't educated in any way of how i think they should have maybe helped me embrace more of my Korean heritage. But I've also heard of other adoptees where the parents did do that, where they would be sent to culture camps or Korean uh, heritage camps, for example, and they hated it because of the fact that it was so unnatural, I think. Because as a child, you're just trying to fit in in general, right? Anything that's different than anybody else, you want to shed that and it's not appreciated as a child. So I think anything maybe my parents would have done as I was younger I don't think it would have helped. And in at least in that sense, I think if they maybe, maybe would have made the resources available to always know that it was possible, that if I did gain an interest, that they were you know there to support and to offer it to me and show me maybe the route and how to find it. But they were also not educated on that as well. So, so I didn't have that interest as well. And a lot of Koreans, I think they, as they go to college or as they become young adults and they get into an environment where they actually come into contact with their other Asians, they may also take an interest. But I was one of the ones that kind of tried to stay away as much as possible from anything Asian, because I didn't see that as a part of who I was. And I wanted other people to also recognize that I wasn't that. I was American and I may not have white skin, but I didn't recognize that as well. Because I, you know, unless you look in the mirror, that's when you see your differences. But if, if you're in your social circumstances and you're just navigating life and who is surrounding you is also Caucasian, then you stop kind of looking at yourself as being different than that. And where do you think the the turning point was where you thought, oh, actually, you want to dig a little further. You want to find out more about your Korean heritage. You want to find out more about your Korean family. I think there were probably small signs along the way, right? Like in college, I actually, I started taking Japanese. So there was an interest, I think, at a subconscious level, even though I was adamant that it was because of my business career and I wanted to work in the automotive industry. And there was always a justification to why that was. It had nothing to do with wanting to be Asian or have anything to do with Asia. But for me, I always justified it in some way. And so it wasn't until I was really, truly older and I had children where I had my first child where it started to kind of trigger like, okay, this is what it's like to be a mother. This is what it's like to have a child. But even then, it still didn't trigger me enough to look into that. Like I liked bulgogi and I liked kimchi, but that was the extent. And I liked Asian food, but that was to Mm -hmm. the extent of even any kind of um, yeah, curiosity or interest into who I was as an Asian person. And it really was my daughter, as I've said before in other interviews, that really triggered me recognizing not only the, the strong bond you, I think you have as a, as a mother with your child, but also as I could see my own reflection in her and see what it meant to have that bond with my mother and then have it to be broken. 
And then all of that, I think, stimulated the interest in who am I? Like, okay, who am I as an adoptee? But who am I more as a Korean woman? And who was I as a Korean child? And so I think as you digress back into the past, slowly in those in those kind of steps, that that recognition of the fact that you were a Korean child is what stimulates the rest of the curiosity. Yeah, I think just hearing your story, I think it's just really, really fascinating. Like it it wasn't something that just happened straight away. It's when you, it's basically when you became a mum. And I don't know if you know, but I'm a mum myself as well. I have a beautiful little girl. She's got so much sass. She does this with her finger. <laughs> and, I, and that's because of me, because sometimes I do it. But for me, being a mum is the most rewarding, brilliant, brilliant feeling. The one thing that I've really appreciated about being a mum is that I guess it's kind of brought me closer to my own mum as well, just because I've seen some of the sacrifice that she might have gone through. And also just massive, massive respect to all the mothers out there, but all the mothers that have that have given birth, that has raised a child and stuff. When did you start thinking, right, okay, you want to start, you want to start looking, you want to start finding out more about your family in, in Korea? I was always very adamant about not searching because I really felt that like I was given this new opportunity and I have this family. And, and I think there was subconsciously some, some sort of guilty feeling. And a lot of adoptees have this towards their adoptive parents because we're really told like anytime I would be approached and I would have to explain why I obviously look different than my parents. I would say I was adopted. And then I would always get the, usually the remark of like, oh, wow, that's so great. You must be so grateful or you must be so thankful that you've been rescued, right? And so if you're told this all your life, then that's that's how your typical response should be is that you have to be grateful. So if you start questioning anything that got you to that point, then am I ungrateful? And so, and that's typically how adoptees are looked at. As soon as they start questioning anything about their adoption or maybe start searching for their birth parents or their, you know, identities or their backgrounds in their, in their, in the Sendi country, in their birth country, this is how they're typically looked at. Instead of having some kind of understanding of the fact that they're just human beings like any of us who are interested in where our DNA come from, you know, our, our cultural identities, just as I would say even a third generation immigrant would also be interested in, in the country where their parents or their grandparents came from. So I think that that is one of the reasons that really uh, a lot of adoptees end up later in life being triggered by something else because there's no space for them to to ask those questions earlier. And so for definitely with my daughter, that was the case is then I recognized like, who are her grandparents? Who are her aunts and, you know, great aunts and uncles? And where, do, where does her DNA come from? And, and of course, it's the first time then that you have somebody that has your DNA, who looks like you and who you can physically tangibly hold on to and recognize that this is your DNA and family. And, and then, and then you also think about your own mother and you think about, okay, what were the circumstances that led her to have to make that horrible decision of having to break that connection, break that physical bond. 
And you, you want to not only satiate, obviously, your own curiosity, but you also want to alleviate, I think, her maybe guilt and shame that she probably lives with. Because I can imagine if I had to do that to my own daughter, what kind of feeling that must bring. And I wouldn't want to live with it for the rest of my life in silence. That's for sure. And you spoke earlier but about um, DNA, which made me uh, think of something which um, I read about your stories, that you took a, a, a DNA test and then you found a match with... Half-nephew. Half-nephew. Half-nephew, yeah. yeah. When you found out about that match, what was... What was going on? Like, how were you? How were you feeling? And what were your what were your emotions? The chances of finding a match are very low. So you don't, when you take a DNA test like that, you don't think you're gonna be the one to really have a match. Like, it's really like winning the lottery because they even say it's. I think it's lower than even a percentage of the one percent. Even the chance of having a match as an adoptee. And, and so when that even popped into my screen, when I checked it and I saw that I had a match that was a high match, I didn't believe it. I kept looking and I kept looking at the percentage to see if it was correct. And of course, it doesn't give you a pinpointed, it gives you like an estimate of what your match could be. So he could have either been my cousin indeed, or he could have been my nephew, but I didn't know which one he would be. And so then it's just like, how and what and why, you know, and, and he was in, in England. So I was like, huh? You know, also crazy because it's so close as well. And so yeah, there were a lot of just like I I literally when I when I saw the match, I was shocked, I think. And then when I got a response, I literally like I think I even f- like fell down because I was so shocked by the fact that it actually was true. Wow. And so you'd been in contact with with your with your nephew and then through that I think you were able to gain some clues and to draw up a, a family tree. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was able to gain a lot of information, but it was never like names and specific information. It was more like which college they studied at and and what they did as a profession, but never like which university that they worked at or those kind of like specific things. It was always very general, but it was enough to be able to piece together and do detective work, which I did just by Googling a lot <laughs> and where I could finally kind of piece together two finalized options according to the DNA, if it was the cousin route or if it was the nephew route to see, okay, who could possibly be my mother or father. Cara, when I first came across you, I... I watched a really heartfelt documentary, a five-minute documentary on BBC. I read about your the story. You were in you were in Korea and you had just won a paternity lawsuit to basically get a DNA test with your birth father. When I watched that, Cara, it, I just I cried so hard. I cried so, so hard. Um so I'm going to start again. <laughs> Sorry. I'm always, I'm actually, I'm actually always so astounded when I, when I speak to people and I hear people that have said this and, and it's, it really yeah. touches me as well to, 
to see people have so much empathy and to really be able to kind of place themselves in my shoes. So thank you. Yeah, I think it just it just really got to me because I just felt so. I don't know. I don't know how I was feeling. I just felt really helpless that. I wanted to help you. I just had a, a daughter. I think at the time she's about one and a half. And I don't know. And I, I, even if I didn't have a child, I think you would still touch. But I think just having that bond with my daughter, it just made me really think more about you or the, the adoptees in general. And I just wanted to find out more. And I don't know if this is going to sound right, but I just felt, I don't know, I know, I'm just repeating myself, so I've just lost my trail of words. But I just, but basically your story really touched me, Cara, and I've been following you ever since. I know that you've, you've had quite a lot of interviews, you've done more videos and everything, and it's just really nice to see, to see you on your journey. And I wondered whether you could tell tell us more about the paternity lawsuit because that must have been a, a really difficult decision for you to go through that process but I guess it's sort of something that that you had to do because you needed to find out more information on your family and career. Yes it's it's not obviously the first step you take when you when you you know find maybe your potential family uh, it's not by any means close to the first thought I had in my in my mind of, oh, let's file a paternity suit and sue my father. Of course, I went through every single other route possible to try to make the connection, to try to talk to family members, to try to at least be able to have a conversation. But I was held back by all of his family. And so I was never allowed the access to ask him the questions to, to be able to just see if he could tell me who my mother was. Cause to be honest, like I had never dreamed about finding my father. I had never even had a desire to find him. I just assumed it was the typical story of my mother was a single mother. She was poor. She couldn't keep me. So she put me up for adoption. And that's just the story I believed all my life then, because that's what's told to you by the adoption agencies. And many adoptees, when they actually do come into reunion, they find out that that story is completely falsified. And I know there's so many stories and it's come out in the, in the most recent investigative committees in all the different countries, especially here in the Netherlands and in Belgium, where most of those files, and if you talk to adoptees who were probably in the same year as I was adopted, they have the same story. One was abandoned on a doorstep. One was abandoned at a bus stop, at a train stop. And and so we, we kind of make it as a joke in the adoptive community when we meet. And I said like, hi, who was, who was abandoned at a bus stop? And only we can make that kind of joke, obviously. Yeah. But if you think about it, how terrible that actually is, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's awful. But that's the question is, is it, is it true? And, and so when I found out that, okay, this man is potentially my father, but I could not get any kind of evidence that he was, I couldn't approach him through any of kind of the natural ways that you would ask, like you would just go to somebody and ask them, you would ask via a family member. None of those ways uh, were possible. And even if you went via the police in Korea, for instance, because I had a family tree and all the names and I had even an address and I had 
birth dates. And I had quite a bit of information that I could give the police and say, hey, can you approach him? It wasn't allowed because of privacy and protection. And they kept telling me, where is your evidence that he's your father? I said, I don't have any. All I can, all I have is this circumstantial evidence. And I have DNA tests, which kind of point in his direction, but nothing that is like upheld in the legal courts of Korea that this is my father. So that means I have a right to approach him. And so this was in the end, the only route. And this was obviously after after a year and a half almost of trying other things, I would say a year, no, a year of trying other routes of, of, yeah. of trying to get to him. And so that's a long time, Cara. That's a long time. I, to be honest, like for me, it is because I'm a very impatient person, but for many <laughs> adoptees who search for 10, 15, you know, years, even for them, it's obviously a very short time. So it's very miraculous, to be honest. I started my journey back when my daughter, she's now six and she was two. So, you know, it's been four years. And then within the first three years I, that I managed to do this, then it's it's mm-hmm. pretty uh, much a miracle that, that this much yeah. has happened. But yeah, there wasn't any other route. And that's why in the end, I made the difficult decision of getting that evidence. And it had nothing to do with bringing his family into the media or coming into the media whatsoever. But the first point was, is there wasn't a way to do it in just a, a reconcilable way with the family. So I had to do it via the court. But then even then, there is no right that you can demand someone to meet you. It's not possible, even through the court. Like some journalists, they put that, that as like kind of the headliner, like demand, demands a meet. But you're not actually able to do that. But leveraging the media, that was the way I did manage to get yeah. the meet. So because the family were so scared, finally, like for the first time, I had a bit of power. Because until that point, their, their tactics were just to ignore me. And just figured that I would go away because I couldn't do anything. Like, what is this person in Amsterdam going to do here? She doesn't speak Korean. She doesn't know how the laws work here. What is she possibly going to do? And yeah, unfortunately, they have the wrong family member. And I found <laughs> I found a way and and I used it. And that was the way to be able to get there. But then all of a sudden they got scared because then all of a sudden, OK, what else will she do? And so that's how I managed to get the meeting. Because I said, if you don't allow me to meet him, then it's going to blow up in your face. And what you've seen now is only a small bit of, of what I will do. And because I didn't feel it was their right to withhold me from my father. And no matter how you want to look at it, the first year I was able to give it to them and, and totally understand their position. Like I can imagine if it was me and I was in their position and some strange person is coming and saying, your father's my father. Of course, you're going to question and distrust and be upset and angry and betrayed. Right. But if a court even recognizes that claim, a third party with DNA, then you can't ignore it anymore. And then there's just the, the conscientious human thing to do is to allow those two people to reconcile and at least be able to figure it out themselves because it's not your right anymore. And because it's both of our fathers. And since that right was taken away, this was the only way to move forward in my story. The one thing which I remember reading is that you're the first Korean adoptee to go this far and get in a paternity lawsuit. And I guess that must have been really big news within the 
Korean adoptee community because then it's allowed other adoptees to to search as well and to progress further with their clues and on their journey. You also met your father as well and I read that the the meeting wasn't how you wanted it to be. I read that he he wore a mask, he wore a hat, he wore glasses. Could you tell us more about that actual meeting, including how you felt? Because that must have been such a big moment for you. Yeah, I'd like to first just clarify one thing about the adoptee community, because my it was the first paternity suit that was successful in Korea. That's okay. true. But it wasn't like a breakthrough in the sense that adoptees can now have all different means to be able to find their families and to meet their okay. family members. Because it's a very specific, like with any kind of law, it's a very specific route. And so it is built, it is true that if they have the same kind of parameters, then they can file the same lawsuit and it'll be easier because it's already been done. But it's not a breakthrough in the privacy uh, laws that protect birth families and also even adoption agencies from releasing information to adoptees. So in that sense, it's not. And there's actually been quite a bit of criticism because because it was such a bold and probably maybe even you could call it reckless move within the adoptee community, because a lot of adoptees are also been concerned about the ramifications of my lawsuit that now birth families are going to be afraid to step forward because adoptees are going to sue them. And I have to say this with a bit of a clout because not everybody will go this far. The, it, there's a reason. I mean, if, if there's been adoption has been since 1953 or four, in Korea and nobody else has done it, there's a reason, right? It, it, all the pieces have to fall into place and you have to have someone that's going to keep pushing forward and not everyone can do that. So I don't see that those fears, which some people hold to be very uh, justified in that. And birth family members, if they want to meet their adopted children, they'll they'll move forward regardless because it's their desire is to meet them. They're not going to be afraid of an adoptee suing. And I, of course, like I said, would never have gone that far to file a paternity suit if I could have met him privately. And I would have even kept it as a secret. Like none of this had to come out into the media whatsoever. The media was just a means to be able to, to get the end. And so then if we move to that meeting, I of course also didn't expect the meeting to be this glamorous Hollywood uh, happy ending where we would meet and he, we would hug and he would tell me every everything and tell me how much he loves me. Like I knew that the circumstances for our meeting were also pushed and forced and, and out of fear. And, but I didn't know. And that was the point is because until that point, the trial was on Friday. And until that point, I didn't know if he knew anything because the family were the only ones that I had contact with. The family were the ones that had contact with my lawyer and their lawyer with my lawyer, but further, I had no contact with my father. And, and then I was even told the evening that I had won the trial, the family member told my lawyer, like, okay, we will allow her to meet her father, because that's what we agreed. If the judge said that, that she's recognized legally to be his daughter, then the meeting will go forward on Monday. But he doesn't know about this. We've never told him anything, because how could we tell him until the judge had proclaimed the legality of, of, the, of the lawsuit? which of course was complete 
crap because since April, they knew actually, and this is June, they knew in April of that year already from the Seoul National University report that I was his daughter. So they could have told him then, but they still refused. So, and so there's so many circumstances like this that aren't known in the outside stories and in the, you know, interviews and stuff because it's too much detail, but there's so many instances where the family had a chance. They had constantly a chance to be able to make it possible to meet in a normal, peaceful way. And they they kept holding back. And that's why I had to use the media as leverage because I knew they could back, they could stick, they could back out of it again. And so the meeting with him was held then at my lawyer's office. And every, of course, journalist in Korea who had who had, you know, reported on my story, wanted to go with me. They all wanted to go with me and make it a big circus. And I had promised the family, I had said there would not be any media. And so I held to my word and I went to my lawyer's office. I took a cab. I was by myself. I was nervous as crazy. I had my friends help me, Korean friends help me choose what to wear because I wanted to make, make sure that I dressed culturally appropriate. And even to the point that I, you know, couldn't wear open heeled shoes because apparently for your elders, you're not supposed to be showing your feet. So even to those little details, I was careful. Mm -hmm. And so we're waiting in my lawyer's office. And the deal was, is I would meet him alone, just him and I for 10 minutes. Of course, I don't speak fluent Korean. I can speak enough to get by, but it's very basic. So I had made a letter. I had made a movie that he could watch of my childhood, of me growing up, of my family, and that was what going to be my 10 minutes with him. And then the, the hopefully the possibility to hear his side of the story, to hear him actually speak to me. But instead, the family called my lawyer and they said, oh, change of plans. He's coming with two bodyguards and this is how it's going to move forward. And if you don't like it, then we're not coming. So you're left with this choice. What do you do? You can say no, but then what's going to happen next? Like it's finally here. The day that you fought for is finally here. Do you just not do it because of the bodyguards? And I wasn't allowed to meet him alone. I had to have the bodyguards there and the bodyguards would also be checking to make sure there wasn't any media. There weren't any recording devices. I was allowed to uh, take a video, like a, a voice recording, but I could not take any videos or pictures. And and so, yeah, so I ended up, of course, saying yes. And that's when my lawyer really became personally involved in my story. Up until then, she was always very professional. She was just my lawyer. But at that point, when she recognized that the family would go even this far, that's when she was just, she just like blew a, a gasket. <laughs> it was just like, what do you think? We're, we're three, like my translator was there, a friend of mine. We're three women. Do you think we have knives? Like, why are you sending bodyguards? Who does this? But in the end, we had to agree. So the bodyguards came up first and they scanned the room and they're, they're real bodyguards like you see in the movies. And, and then they brought him up and he was fully covered, like you said, with sunglasses and a hat and a, and a mask. And, but I was still just completely shocked again by, by to the extent that they would go because, yeah, I mean, it was the first meeting ever with my biological father in, in at least to, at least my knowledge, 30, 30, what, 38, 36 years. And, and it went this way. So I, no, th- yeah, 36 years then probably because I was probably four or something when I was abandoned. So 
I couldn't even find any words when I first, when he first sat down, like my lawyer and my friend said, say something. And so then I, of course I introduced myself, but then he was like, I can't hear you. What are you saying? I, I'm, I'm going deaf. And, and then I of course spoke louder, but then I was so frazzled, I think by, by the bodyguards that I couldn't, I couldn't make myself yeah, really speak out what was on my heart. And so my friend tried to take over, but she's also very quiet, I, I should say, speaking. And so she couldn't say it loud enough either. And so then in the end, my lawyer took over and she tried to explain to him and say, you took a DNA test. This is your daughter. And he said, what? This is crazy. I only have three daughters. And then she explained, you went to Seoul National University, took a DNA test. And he didn't even know he took a DNA test. So I think the family probably just told him he went there for a health checkup or something, which makes sense because it goes along with the story that they didn't tell him until after the trial about me. So... And then in, he, it was very argumentative because he didn't understand it and he was just really upset. And and then I tried to get him to read my letter, but he's like, I can't read this. My sight isn't that great. And then he just kind of left. And I begged him to stay. I begged him to take off his sunglasses. I, I begged him to just to look at me. and But he wouldn't recognize anything. He wouldn't take any responsibility and he just left. And then I just broke down and I cried. Oh, Cara, I'm so sorry. I don't have any words. <laughs> I don't have any words. Yeah, um, I didn't either. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I expected it, like I said, for for it to to not be this beautiful meeting or anything, but I didn't expect this. I didn't expect mm-hmm. bodyguards. I didn't expect it to last only for like six minutes. Mm-hmm. I expected to him, him to at least know why he was there to at least accept the fact that I was his daughter and to maybe at least give me a name, something to be able to help me find my mother, but it was nothing. Yeah. Oh. Cara, I'm so sorry that you're, you're having to relive this pain with me. I've completely lost all my set of questions that I had for you. This is such a personal story that you're sharing, that you share with me from a podcast. And I'll be honest, I, I, I have read quite a lot about, about you. I'm very fascinated with your, with your story, Cara. I don't know, I feel like I am kind of with you and every step that you that you make I feel like I'm kind of like just behind you or something I don't I don't know how to describe it how do you keep motivated how do you keep how do you keep going because I can I can tell I think everyone can tell anyone that's come across your story they're just so amazed with how much you've how much you've progressed even if you don't feel that you have Cara you have progressed so much and you're such a strong character how do you yeah how do you keep pushing how do you how do you keep going I think it's with anything that's just a part of like your heart it's 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 something that you just can't let go of right like once once you recognize like deep down inside of yourself what it means 
as a mother and what it means to be a mother. And I think anybody who is searching also, even just for who they are as a person, like it's, you, you try to let it go a lot of times. Definitely. I've, I've, I've said countless times, you could ask my husband, like, okay, I'm stop. I'm done. Life was easier when I lived in ignorant bliss. It was when I didn't have to think about it, when I didn't allow it to affect my emotional aspects of my life and even my physical aspects of my life, life was easier. <laughs> But the essential of, of who I am as a person and what I give to my children and what kind of role model and mentor I hope to be, that's when I realized like I can't give up. There's for my children, they have to see that when when there's something that they believe in, that they need to fight for, that that it's not something that you can just give up them. Is as difficult as it is, and is as much pushback as you receive, as much criticism, as much misunderstanding and attacks. It's you have to remain strong in in what you're fighting for, and and that's why, like to be honest, like I don't have any regrets. Like a lot of people ask, like, was it worth it? If you look back now from today, was it worth it? And I can say with 100% certainty, yes, because if I wouldn't have even taken one step out of all the steps that I took, I would have not known who he was. Even if I met him under these circumstances, I would have never met him. Even if I don't, I didn't get the answers that I'd hoped from his mouth. I received so many other answers still about my genetic history, about a lot of stuff also where, where, where I'm from and what, and where I got it also from because DNA is such a powerful thing. And as much as we like to say that love conquers all and love is more important than anything, of course, it's very important, but knowing where you come from and, and whose DNA and where you're from is also just an essential human aspect of who we are. And it's a common and natural thing to want to know. And of course, I'm learning to also accept that I may never know. I may never know the other 50% of who I am. And I have to also accept that as well. But I will never regret and think that I did try at least. And that's more important to me than, than just getting Cara, you are one amazing woman, (laughs) so strong. For people that want to read more about your story, Cara, where can can people find you? I would say Instagram and Facebook, of course. Uh, You can go to my Instagram. It's Karabas Kongmisuk. Kongmisuk is my uh, Korean name that's on my file. Whether or not it's my real name in Korea, I have no idea, but it's the one that was at least on my file. And on Facebook, I'm also there as Kara Boss or Kara Boss Music. I'll also put those on the show notes as well. Where are you up to at the moment with kind of life in general? 
Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm also, I have a life as well. And this is, I, I say a lot of times, sometimes it feels like you're a split personality because this aspect of searching and, and my Korean identity often doesn't feel completely linked with who I am here in Amsterdam because I went to Korea just recently with another documentary uh, company searching for my mother and there it feels like I'm completely another person that I come back and nobody knows anything about what's happening in Korea. Right. And I'm a mother and I have two children. I have a business that I run and, and I'm a wife and I do the everyday, you know, uh, <laughs> normal things of grocery shopping and stuff like that. But my hope is also is that by sharing my, my story that I can help just the everyday person know that there's an other side of the adoptee narrative that there's nothing wrong with an adoptee questioning also their adoption, questioning where they come from and searching for those answers. And it means nothing that they don't love or adore their adoptive parents, that they're not happy with their current lives, because I also am very happy with my current life as well. But it's just deep down yearning and, and need that I want to know who and where I come from, not only for myself, for, but for my children as well. And it's an essential human right. And I hope that governments and politicians will recognize and, and, and enforce laws that will allow adoptees, because it's not even just adoptees, but the future also surrogates, IVF babies. So there's so many other developments in that realm that are moving and shaking and where DNA is, is making a real difference in, in reuniting people who didn't even know that they were family. It just goes to show how important that is and how careful we need to be as a society as we look at the after effects and the shocks of those kind of decision-making of, of especially inter-country adoption, especially private surrogacy, where the child is not able to have the right to know who their you know, donors are. Because from babies up until even five, six, seven-year-olds who are adopted and don't know where they're from, everyone always thought, oh, but babies, they, they won't be affected, but they're just as much as affected. So I think that these perspectives are changing slowly, but I hope that more and more people will encompass and realize that it's really important and that they need to recognize and allow people to question. Cara, thank you so much for sharing the story and for coming on the show and again just reliving <laughs> your trauma sorry if I've had to dig deep into your story I know I've watched quite a few interviews with you it's more for people outside who aren't aware of your story and I agree with you I feel everyone has a right to learn more about their past and their, their upbringing and yeah I just Oh, <laughs> no, I really appreciate it. And it's really, it's, yeah. it's, it's places like this where you're touching the everyday person's lives where they may not have thought of adoption in this way. And that's the important thing that we're doing is by changing those perspectives and, and you're helping in that. So I appreciate it. <gasps> oh, this is, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. I don't know. I don't know if I was anticipating this. It's such a moving story, Cara, and I wish you so much luck in 
finding your answers. And yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't have any words <laughs> apart from that. And also, thank you so much for um, clarifying that. I think what I had assumed when your paternity lawsuit, I, I don't know. I, I just, I think, oh, I think because I went through, I just read so much. I just assumed that it was a, it was a breakthrough, but obviously it's, it's not breakthrough. It's just something that that you were successful with on your journey, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's a breakthrough for everyone else. So no, unfortunately so not. For- I wish I could claim yeah. that. I wish I could claim that, but I mean, yeah, of course. There's like with any kind of uh, lawsuit like this that yeah hasn't been done before. It, it does obviously bring the conversation, and it does change perspective. And it, someone else had said you know, like similar to like Roe versus Wade, like those kind of things. Like people reflect back on that for other cases. So it's not to say that it won't make an effect for other adoptees if they would try something similar. But unfortunately, it's not like this immediately breakthrough for all adoptees as I wish it would be. But it does bring about the conversation. It does spark the realization that it's so important that someone will ha- will go to these links in order to be able to prove that and to be able to find out who they are and where they're from. So yeah. And I think more importantly, it probably gives other adoptees the courage to realize that they're capable and that they're able to do something and not just be thankful and just accept whatever's been told. Because in general, we're always just very thankful for whatever we're given, like by adoptee agencies, by government institutions. They're like, oh, here's a little bit of information. And, you know, in general, people are like, oh, okay, that must be true. And then it's given more adoptees, I think, the the initiative to question is it true? And what other steps can I take to really question and make sure that I'm I'm being dealt with in the way that I should be? Yeah. Thank you so, so much, Cara. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. I hope that this, this show really brings to light, you know, what you and other adoptees are going through and, uh, and just kind of create that, create that awareness as well. So thank you so, so much, Cara, for sharing your story. No, thank I you. Have a nice day. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much as well. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate you also, just your heart and the showing also your, your compassion and empathy as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cara. Bye-bye. Bye.